to go first to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we'll begin. We're going to take a look at the Christian life and try to explain it from the very beginning all the way through how we can live a fairly victorious life as believers. And we just simply title this The Christian Life Explained. You'd be surprised how many people have walked away from God because they didn't understand the Christian life or they say they accepted Christ, but they didn't know what they were getting into or just a few little trials and tribulations came to them and they walked away from the king. But in Ephesians 2, I, I want to read verses 1 through 4. Then we'll pray. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. And we'll go ahead and read the next one here. Even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. That's a parenthesis or a parenthetical statement. And then verse 6, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful again to be able to fellowship with the saints. It's always a privilege to gather. We know that where two or three are assembled, you're there in the midst. And so we're quite happy to have you with us this evening. So now give us ears to hear. Help me to minister the word of God and speak clearly to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, And everyone said, amen, amen. We tell people very often that before you can ever help a person or lead a person to become saved, you have to help that person acknowledge that they're lost. Because if a person doesn't acknowledge that they're in their sins, then they're certainly not going to see a need for a savior. So we say you have to get a man lost before you can get that same man saved, which is so important. Paul certainly understood this, and I think this is why in Ephesians chapter 2, He starts in verse one by telling us we were dead. That is to say that we were not alive to God spiritually. He's not saying that their heart was not beating and he's not saying they were not breathing people. He's very simply stating that when man is in this world without God, he's dead. He's unconnected. I use the illustration sometime of the gentleman that had a a lawyer, I believe, that lived next door to him, and he tried to witness to that lawyer, and the lawyer would tell him that he's just as good as anybody who goes to church. He said, the difference between you and me, you go to church on Sunday, I go out on the lake. You spend your time on a pew, I spend my time in a boat. And the, the preacher explained to the lawyer that, no, that's not actually the problem. The problem is that you're dead. And, and that, that lawyer said, dead? I mean, I can smell the roses. I'm standing here talking to you. I'm a living, breathing person. And the preacher explained to him, even though you're all the things that you said, you're still dead to the knowledge of God. And then he, he pointed him in the direction of a tree that was in his front yard and said, do you see the squirrel that's up there in those trees, just jumping from one branch to the other. And the gentleman said, yes. He said, do you think that tree is alive? He said, of course it is. He said, how do you know? He said, because of the, the greenage of the foliage and the leaves and all of that that grows on it. He said, do you believe that tree knows that the squirrel is jumping through the branches? He said, of course not. Not capable of knowing that. It's not built to know that. And then the preacher explained to the lawyer that just like the tree is incapable of acknowledging the presence of the squirrel, even though the tree is a living thing, that he himself is dead to the knowledge of God. 
He has no idea that God is involved in all aspects of his world, but he's totally dead to his presence and totally dead to his activity. And this is what Paul is saying when he says in chapter 2, verse 1, that a person is dead in their trespasses and sins. He's not saying they cannot see. He's not saying they can't talk. He's very simply saying that, that there's a presence of God to which they are totally oblivious. And he goes further by telling us in verse 2 that this individual who's dead in sin lives according to the prince and power of the air. That is to say, a sinner is under the dominion of the devil, even if they don't believe the devil exists. Think of that. That's a good chunk of the world. People who don't acknowledge evil, who don't acknowledge demon possession, who don't acknowledge that there's something called evil, we know from verse number two that that spirit works in the children of disobedience. This is why people disobey God. If you didn't know, you have it right here. This is why people are in sin. And verse two also speaks of the course of this world. So quite naturally, this is why we have to get the gospel to people, because most people living in sin do not follow the course of this world and run into God. Because they're fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the desires of their mind. And most folks are not thinking about God. Now look at it this way. If, if you didn't come to a serious relationship with God until you were later in years, then ask yourself this question. When you were in your 20s or your 30s, how many times did you gather with your friends and say, you know what, let's just have a prayer meeting? See? I guarantee you didn't do it because that's not where your mind was. And the, the individual who's following the course, course of this world, their life is dominated by the culture of this world, is dominated by the heroes of this world, sports figures, actors, actresses, and so on and so forth. And when a person is living like that, they're like a leaf that is being carried by the waters in a river. They just go wherever the tide takes them, the course of the world. But verse three, he says, our conversation and sometimes conversation in, in old English means lifestyle. See? So our lifestyle in times past. So the before Christ years, your B.C. days, you lived your life according to your own desires, everything about you was concerned with fulfilling the desires of yourself. You weren't thinking about trying to do God's will. It was your will. You may have tried to convince yourself you were helping God by doing your will, but it was still all about you. Your life was centered with the single letter I. Everything was about you. And this is how the arguments came about. So verse 3, the last sentence, it says, and we're by nature the children of wrath. So it's a natural thing for sinners to abide under the wrath of God. That's the last verse of John chapter 3. It's also a very natural thing for sinners to be angry people. This is why some folks are irritated when the gospel is proclaimed or when they hear the name Jesus or the Bible is introduced. So this kind of a person who is going in one direction... They need to come in contact with a tract, a TV program, a radio preacher, a living edition of Christianity through someone like you, a letter that's written to them. And when they hear that and when they read it, now they have an opportunity to make a choice. Am I going to believe the presentation of the gospel facts that I am now hearing? And when that person chooses to believe. And the mighty power of God has brought conviction into their life. And the Lord has worked upon them so that they now are able to place their trust in the king because of the power of that conviction. Then that person is changed. They're regenerated. God gives them a new nature. So they're no longer a person who has a, a nature of wrath. And, and for the person who says, well, uh, there's, there was never anything in my life that I did that was wrong. Well, if you were ever convicted by the Holy Spirit, you need to know the Holy Spirit does not convict unless there's an evidence of guilt. He doesn't play with our emotions. 
God would never convict you of something you're doing wrong without giving you the power to turn and walk away from the very thing he's convicting you of. Otherwise, it's a game. So God's not playing a game with you. He's not playing a game with me. When the gospel is preached, that person receives from the Lord grace to change. They have an opportunity. So as you can see here, the person who believes You can see in verse five, when we were dead, then he says he makes us alive. He quickens us. And then verse six, he raises us up and sits us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, because that's where Jesus went after he was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. He went up to the right hand of the father. So the person who has been convicted of the Holy Ghost, repented of their sins, believed upon the Lord, been totally regenerated, can now move from this earthly realm to a place where they set their affection on things above because we're seated in heavenly places, as the scripture says. So let's back up and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Since we have helped you to understand where sinners live in an ungodly world and why they live the way they live, then now we need to see what happens when we become Christians. Second Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse number 17. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, any man refers to any human being on planet Earth who trusts in God. You have never met anyone who is so bad that they cannot be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And you have never met anyone who is so good that they're not in need of the redeeming blood of Jesus. So verse 17 tells us then, if this any man is in Christ, there's a newness that comes. So God gives us a new nature. We become part of a new species. I'm a totally different person now. I'm a spiritual person now. I'm no longer just dominated by my sensory perceptions and by my emotions. I've become a Christian now. And as a Christian, I've been born again, made over in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that I am now supposed to live a spiritual life in contrast to the natural life. Now, what was the natural life? I just went with the flow and lived according to my emotions. But now as a Christian, I've got to allow the word of God to govern me even when my emotions want to go in a different direction. I have to be willing to allow God's new creature to manifest in this earth. He saved you so that you can be a witness to other people so that they could be saved. And if it says old things are passed away, that means your sins are gone. They're gone. And, and well, however bad you used to be before you became a Christian and however much condemnation the devil may continue to bring in your life regarding what you used to be like. According to this here, now that you place your trust in him, you're a new creature. The old things are gone. They're in the rearview mirror. You're not driving back there again. And if you know that you won't allow your past to hold on to you. If you allow your past to hold on to you, then just like strings that are attached to your heart and to your mind, you'll be a puppet and the devil will manipulate you through guilt, condemnation and shame. He'll do it every day of your life if you let let him do it. He'll take those those incidents that happen that really, really brought you a lot of pain and he'll have you thinking about those things 16 hours a day. And he'll find those, those uh, events in your life that brought a lot of sadness and sorrow. And, and he'll do everything he can to jerk you around from one place to the other, thinking about all of those things. But if you know that by the blood of Jesus Christ, the old things had passed away, then you are no longer bound by those. The power of the cross severed the power of your past from having dominion over you. You say, well, pastor, do, does that mean I won't have any recollection of my past? No, you're always going to remember certain things back there. 
I mean, even God, when he prophesied through the prophets to Israel, he'd remind them of what they were like coming out of Egypt. And he'd tell them over and over again about what their past sins were. The difference, though, is that now that I know the old things are passed away and are, for the most part, buried, just gone, I can move into the next part where it says, behold, all things are become new. I can make new memories now. And those new memories will push the old memories further and further in the back. So you spend more time with God, you spend more time in the word, you spend more time worshiping the king and spending, spending time in his presence. And you'll find, as the scripture says, in his presence are full, his fullness of joy at his right hand of pleasures forevermore. So all things are become new. The world is different once you become a Christian. New perspective, new outlook, new attitude. You don't even think about things the way you once thought about them. This is where the change comes. I've met a whole lot of people that were, how do we want to say, they, they, they were fanatics about a, a woman's right to take the life of a newborn or a child in the womb or something like that, you see. Then they become a Christian. And then they start running into verses that say things like to, to Rebecca, the children that are in your womb are two nations. Or they run into that verse in Ecclesiastes where it says, it is God that causes the bones to grow in a mother's womb. See? Or they run into Jeremiah chapter 1 where it talks about before your mother knew you, I knew you. Before you were conceived, I knew you. You see? And so everything changes and they hold a baby in their arms now. And then they realize and looking at that little kid that, that they have given birth to or someone has given birth to someone that has an eternal soul. Because animals can't do it. Insects can't do it. Humans are the only creatures on planet Earth that give birth to that which is eternal. So everything that comes into this world that comes out, out of a mother's womb, it has an eternity. It has a soul. Yeah. So God shows us that all these things now are become new. Everything looks different now. We, we look at grass differently now, the way it grows. We look up in the sky and see the stars at night. And, and everything looks different when you know there's, there's a wonderful designer behind it. The handiwork of God. So the new life brings with it new perspectives and a, and a new outlook. But you can't enjoy the new things, if you don't let go of the old things. And some people don't ever do that. You will find that some of the unhappiest Christians that you will ever meet are people who refuse to let go of the past, and they are constantly reminding you of how somebody mistreated them back yonder or something bad that happened two years ago. Or how somebody did this to them and mistreated them on the job. But if you can let that go and move beyond that, then it no longer has power over you. And remember, anybody that you choose to uh, hold a grudge against, every time you see that person, you get angry when you see them, that person has power over you even if they don't know they have the power. Because they control your emotions. You walk into a room and there they are and suddenly your blood starts boiling. Yeah, because they have power over you. And, and you, can, you can be bigger than them if you take the time to look at this person now in a whole new light. You say, how, how, how can I look at them now? L look at them now as a sinner. Someone lost. Someone that needs God. Someone that God wants to redeem. Someone that God wants to, to save from their sins. You say, well, Pastor, what if they're, they say they're a Christian and they're still treating people bad? Well, you can still look at them in a new light. You, if you know the difference between an authentic Christian and a person who's not a genuine Christian, and you can identify the real fruit in contrast to what is fake fruit, then you'll be able to still pray for them and say, God, help them to manifest the real thing or to come in contact with you. This is what a new creature does. New creature doesn't live according to the, to the old plans. Let's look at another, another verse here. Let's go to Romans 12. We're talking about 
Christian life explained, how we should live, what this should look like. Romans 12, notice verse number 1 and also 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. According to this verse, your body should be given to the Lord as an offering. That's not a one-time thing. That's every day. In another place, Paul says, In a question, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So when you became a Christian, your body became the house of God. And so your ears, your eyes, all of these are gates to the temple. That's what they are. They're gates to the temple. You determine what's going to get in God's house. You determine what's not going to get in God's house. And if your body is supposed to be a wholly acceptable sacrifice, then you have to do everything you can to make sure that that sacrifice is pleasing to God. We have all kinds of examples of when God was not happy with their sacrifices. Malachi in particular. They offered up animals that were lame, blind. God said, don't ever offer me animals that have defects and flaws in them physically. And he said to the Israelites, Why don't you offer this to your governor? You don't even have enough respect for me to give me what I ask for, but maybe for the leader of your nation or your region, you'll have greater respect for them, which is to say that some people have more respect for the mayor, the governor, a senator, a president, than they do God. So since God is our king and we live in his kingdom and he requires us to be a sacrifice. Be willing to present yourself to God. This is this is why Christianity requires discipline. Take up the yoke and follow me, the Lord says, because you belong to him lock, stock and barrel 24 hours a day. Christianity was never supposed to be something you do once or twice a week and then the rest of the week you do your own thing. The earth belongs to the Lord and in the fullness thereof. And we are here basically as folks that are living on his property and he's given us all of this to enjoy. So enjoy it. If you get to go fishing, go fishing. If you get to go skiing, go skiing. If you get to go climb through the mountains, enjoy all the things that you want to do. No problem with that. Just understand that wherever you go and whatever you do, you represent him. You're an ambassador for him. And if you do that 24 hours a day, you're walking in contact with with God's word. You know as well as I do, there are a lot of people don't like that much religion in their life. They say that's a little bit too much, a little too intrusive. Why in the world do I want to do this all day long while I'm awake when all I have to do this is for one or two or three or four hours a week? It just seems like life is a whole lot easier when it's when I'm the one in control. That's hogwash. Your life is a whole lot better when you let God be the one in the driver's seat. Yeah, yeah. For them, for them farmers that do have that GPS stuff, they can, they, they've got to trust that satellite and all that equipment in there so that when they're out there, you know, it'll go where it's supposed to go. And if you are led by the Spirit, the Scripture says, you're a son of God. Let God lead you. Let God direct your steps. So verse number one, your body... Is to be a living, holy sacrifice. Then verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the first sentence, you have to march out of step with the culture of this world. You have to be out of step with the kingdom of darkness, and with all of those who are following the course of this world, who are living their lifestyle according to how they lived before knowing Jesus. You've got to be different from them. And if, and if in your Christian life no one ever asks you what is it that makes you different from others, then maybe there's no difference at all. But there should be a difference. It should be a difference. Your, your life should not be 
a blending of colors. You know, I've had people tell me before, well, you know, everything's not black and white, Brother Daryl. There are a few gray areas around here. And then when I asked them to explain to me some of the gray areas, then they realized it's not really gray at all. There's a pink and, and, and all kind of other colors, not gray at all. But, but with God, God says friendship with this world is enmity with God. He says, all that's in this world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, see? So as a Christian then, I'm paying attention to what the world is saying to me. I'm not trendy. I don't go with the latest fashions. I am interested in things that are going to better my walk with the king. So I'm keen on whatever is going to be connected with technology. I want God to go first class. I don't think he needs to be last with the least. He ought to be first with the best. See, that that kind of a thing. But I also realize that in this world, most of our positions of power are governed by people who do not know God. And they are the ones typically who are speaking into society about what people ought to do. And Paul says, be not conformed to this world. I cannot become like them because the scriptures already told me I have to become more and more like Christ. See, that's that's the change. This is what the Christian life is all about. When someone tells me I've been saved for 25 years, but they still live like the devil. And there's either something wrong with Christianity and regeneration or somebody's lying to me. See, this isn't this isn't difficult. This isn't rocket science. If God comes in, there has to be a change. He cannot move into your life and you not know he's there because he's a disruptor. I guarantee you, if I moved into your house, you'd know I was there. Give you my word. You better believe it. I move into your house. You you come home. And uh, you look, you say, well, that, that, that's odd. Socks on the couch there. See, yeah, you say, well, somebody else must be here. Yeah, when God comes in, he starts disrupting things. And sometimes he disrupts those things we love the most. Yeah, yeah. He, he says to Abraham, take Isaac, your son that you love so much. Head to the top of a hill and get ready to sacrifice it. That means give him up. Be ready to release him. And God will do that in your life. He'll put his finger on something because he wants you to walk away from it. And then when you do, you find out that God may give you something back that's even better. Because I guarantee you, the Isaac that laid down on that altar at the top of that hill when they climbed up there, he was a totally different young man and jumped up off of there when God spared his life. He was willing to trust his dad. And, and he said, you know, I, I see the wood and I see the fire, but we've done this before. Where's the sacrifice? And, and daddy looked at Isaac and said, well, the Lord, will pre, he'll, pre, he'll prepare for us a lamb or a ram. Well, OK, that, that's fine. Then you get to the top of the hill and then daddy says, God has prepared one for us. He's provided. Uh, Isaac, would you please lay down? I see me. He'd had to chase me and he he'd had chased me down the hill and across the ridge cap down into a valley. And, and unless he had good legs, he probably wouldn't have caught me. But Isaac trusted his dad and he laid down there, let his father bind him. And he was ready to let his dad plunge a knife into him. And just when Abraham had his hand in the air, how many of you have been, been able to do that to your kid? Just when he had his hand in the air. God spoke and said, nope, you don't have to do that. I know you love me now. And he said, look over there. You'll see a ram caught with his horns in the bushes over there. And he looked and sure enough, there it was. Now, Abraham didn't know that as he was coming up one side of the hill, God had the ram coming up the other. See, but that's typically how God operates. You, you can't see the answer. You can't see the solution. He just simply wants you to do what is commanded of you to do. So the command here is don't be conformed to this world. This world is going in a, in, a, in a different direction. But he says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now he's telling us how to keep from marching in step with the world. It starts with the mind. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, 
he gave them new commands. And he told them to build a tabernacle. You say, why did he do that? God knew that he had to change their mind before he could change their behavior. And that's why the scripture says when he brought them out of Egypt, he led them a certain way. Because if they would have went another direction and they would have saw war, the scripture says they would have fled back to Egypt. Because in their minds, they still were slaves. So they weren't warriors yet. And God had to transform them into that. And when we come out of sin and come into the kingdom of God, however much energy we have and excitement and passion for God we have, we still have lived for years and decades according to our sinful nature. And so we have a tendency to revert back to that when we run into trouble. So this is why we have to change our mind. This is why we do Bible study. This is why we hear the word, listen to the word, sing Christian music, because our mind needs to be renewed. Now, what are some specific things that would, would need to be renewed? God has to change what you think about just about every aspect of your life. He has to give you a new vocabulary very often. Yeah, doesn't take long either. The Marine Corps changed my vocabulary in 90 days. 90 days. I learned in 90 days that that's not a wall, that's a bulkhead. That's not a ceiling, that's an overhead. That's not a floor, that's a deck. I learned that that's not a restroom, that's a head. In 90 days, they changed my vocabulary and they changed my behavior. So it doesn't take long, you know. And the Christian who comes to know God, they start reading the scripture and then realize, okay, God is showing me that I need a conversation seasoned with grace. He's showing me how to approach problems and think differently rather than always being so pessimistic and full of doubt and anxiety. Maybe I should actually start believing that if God is for me, there's not a whole lot of enemies that can be against me. Yeah. Just just change your change your perspective, you know. There are a lot of defeated Christians, unhappy with their lifestyle. They go through the rituals, but I'm telling you how to live a Christian life that is exciting and one that you certainly will enjoy. So I'm constantly renewing my mind as I read scripture. I'm reading the Bible. Job said, I make a covenant with my eyes not to behold a certain maid. So that means I got to be careful what comes into these eyes. When the scripture tells us we should uh, forgive, you know, then that tells me that forgiveness does not come naturally to people. What comes natural is to hold a grudge. And when the scripture says that we should show compassion and consolation to people in the same measure that God has shown it to us, then we quickly realize, okay, Now, I I need to be a lot more sympathetic to other people's pains, because if it was me, I would want people to be that way with me. Yeah. Yeah, that's in that's in Corinthians first chapter. But but also, let's not forget that the, the Bible says, judge not so that you won't be judged. Now we, we have to explain that because people who don't know God, they'll say this to you. Well, the scripture says you're not supposed to judge. And then I always tell people you need to read the whole verse. Because if you're a Christian, you're making judgment calls every day. Several each day. The scripture says he that is spiritual judges all things. Jesus said if you're going to judge, make a righteous judgment. Now to quote the scripture from Matthew again. Judge not so that you won't judge so that with whatever judgment that you yourself use against somebody else, that same judgment is going to come back to you in like kind. Jesus never told his followers not to judge. He just said, expect your kind of judgment that you level against somebody else to come back on you. So if I tell you that you're not supposed to commit adultery, I'm not supposed to go out and commit adultery. That's what he's saying. If you're going to tell somebody that something is wrong, then make sure you're applying that same standard to your own life because other people are going to apply that same standard to your life. That's what Jesus is saying. It's impossible to go through life without making judgment calls. You had to make a judgment call this evening as to whether or not you wanted to come to Bible study. You got up this morning and made a judgment call regarding whether or not you wanted to go to work or go work out in your yard or whatever you did. 
Every day is about judgment calls. You make the decision and then you live with the consequences of that choice. The transformation of the mind then is what's going to help us be able to judge accurately and correctly according to Scripture. And as you can see, the latter part of verse two, it says, judge, it says, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove or test the will of God. You're never going to know God's will if you don't change how you're thinking. And you're never going to learn God's will if you don't read God's word. Because God's will is manifested in God's word. If we don't know his word, we cannot know his will. The scripture said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But there are some people in this world that would say something like this. Well, I'm not sure God wants everybody to be saved. That man's wicked. He's a serial killer. And since, since he's taken all these lives, I'm not sure God wants him in heaven. Then you quote the scripture again. God's not willing that any should perish. But all come to repentance. And if a thief on the cross who was a murderer could find repentance there, hanging a few feet from Jesus, then why do you think God wouldn't grant the same kind of forgiveness to somebody else in this world who is passing through here and doing a lot of, a lot of devious deeds? Now, I also know that the whole emotional side of that, this is why he's on the throne and we're not. Because if you were on the throne and I was on the throne, there's certain people that the gates of heaven would be closed to them. There's just absolutely no way they would ever get in. Yeah. But knowing God, that's the that's the key. Let's look at another verse. Let's go over to Philippians four and, and we'll just hammer on this mind a little bit more. Philippians four. And we're talking about this Christian life explained, how, how we should do it, what it should look like. So Philippians 4, look at verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, Philippians 4, verse 8, whatsoever things are pure, lovely, of good report, if there be any virtue, there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So taking the last sentence of verse 9 first, you can see the result of all of this. You have peace. Why do so many Christians have disturbed lives and anxious lives and unhappy about everything. If we do what God has told us to do, we'll have peace. I'm telling you now how to keep from having a nervous breakdown. You don't have to have one. If you regulate your thoughts, govern your thoughts, bring your thoughts subjective, or I should say bring them captive to the word of God, then you'll find out you don't have to have a nervous breakdown. Millions of people have for a variety of of different reasons that I, I, I won't always understand. But I do know this in verse 8. I'm told I should meditate on what is true. So I don't want to meditate on what's, what's a lie and what's false. Because something that's untrue can certainly hurt you. You know, the problem is we don't know what's true and what's not true on the, on the television half the time. But I do know this. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So I'm just going to believe him. So I'll come back to scripture. I'll come back to the Bible. The Bible is the inspired word of God. There are a lot of voices out there to say things about it as contrary. But I'm a hold to this because this tells me the truth. And so that's what I'm going to think about. And then also, again, things that are honest, things that are just. Notice the connection. True, truth, honesty, things that are just or righteous, things that are pure. So I'm not trying to think on things that are impure, Things that will defile me, See? things that are profane. I want to want to have a a mind that that is uh, clean as God wants it to be clean. Let me give you an illustration. If if you are surrounded surrounded by people who don't 
necessarily use the best language. Do you think if you're not careful, some of that will go to rolling around in your head? You better believe it. Yeah. It'll get to bouncing, bouncing around in there in your thoughts. And then pretty soon, without you even having to rehearse it and without you even wanting it to happen, something will come up and before you know it, here come one of them words flying out of your mouth. But if, if we can learn to, to meditate on things that are pure and then things that are lovely, then it's not the first thing that comes to mind. See? You've know, you got memories of it. It may still be back there somewhere, but you know, in, in your relationship with the king, we can find all kinds of things to say that don't necessarily have to be degrading. Find some Bible words. I'm not saying find a word as a substitute for Jesus. The Bible says don't take the name of the Lord in vain. So I'm not talking about that kind of a thing. But I am saying you can find phrases in the Bible that still would help you if you found yourself in trouble. No doubt, no doubt about it. So whatever is lovely, of good report. And then it talks about virtue and praise. Now verse 9 he says, look, you have learned and received from me certain things, certain teachings. You've watched me and observed me and you've heard me. He said, do these things. So now he's saying we need to be examples. We need to be examples. All of us are either teaching someone or learning from someone. That's just the way life operates. Every day of your life, you're learning something from somebody or teaching somebody. If you're reading a book, you're learning something. If you're watching television, you're learning something. If you're listening to radio, you're learning something. If you're, if you're sweeping a floor, somebody sees you. Somebody sees you. If you're standing up in front of a classroom, somebody sees you. If you're making decisions that are going to affect other people, people are watching you. They're watching how you handle yourself, the way you come to the decision that you need to make. People are always watching. So you're either teaching or you're learning. Sometimes you're doing both. Yeah. Little kids come into this world and they watch their parents and, and, and they start trying to act like them. That's why they have their habits and their, their manner, mannerisms. Tiffany, all she had to do was spend a little time with my mom to realize that I, I act just like her. You know, I just got habits just like she had. One day we were riding in the car in Cleveland, and my mom was sitting in the back seat, and it was quiet as we were riding. And my mom just sitting back there to herself, just start talking to herself, just start making noises, and pop, 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 pop. And then Tiffany just looked at me and smiled and said, Nah, I know where you get this from. <laughs> just carry on a conversation and make noises all by yourself. See? Yeah. When, when my mom drinks a cold drink or a pop or something like that, before she drinks it, she likes to put it in the freezer. I do the exact same thing. If you would have told me I was doing it because I learned it from her, I would say, no, I just do it because I like cold pop. But that's exactly where I got it from. And it's the same thing with young men and young ladies. I can still remember when my little sister got a little older, you know, and she started wandering around at three and four trying to put on high heels and, you know, want to walk around just like mama. And, 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 and little boys want to do the things their dad does. Yeah, these, these things happen. So we're always teaching and we're always learning. And Paul says we should be the kind of examples that people will want to imitate, and he says, the God of peace will be with you. Yeah, I, I think that's a good thing. In a world like today, where there's so much turmoil, I think peace is a powerful thing to have. Because a lot of people don't have it. Uh, people are battling all kinds of, of issues. But let's look at something else. We're already in Philippians. Go to the next book, which is Colossians. Go to Colossians 2, and we'll work on Something else here. Colossians. Oh, my goodness. I can't stand that clock on the wall there. Colossians 2. Look at verse number, verse number 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So there's your example. That, that's your hero. And that's who we should teach our little ones. That's their hero. Be like him. 
Verse 7, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So let's establish our roots in God the same way you uh, backyard farmers and gardeners and all of those like to make sure that your vegetation comes up well and you get a good harvest. The same way you work on that, make sure we work on our spiritual life. Yeah. How many of you like planting flowers around your house? See, there are a few of you in here like flowers and like pretty things like that. <clears throat> well, what would happen if, if you planted, you know, some flowers on the east side of your house and then after about, you know, let's say a week and a half or two weeks, you thought, well, I just don't think they're getting enough sun. So you went on and just dug them up, put them on the west side. Then after about a month of that, you said, it just doesn't seem to me like they're getting the rain and water that they need. Why don't we put them on the south side? And then you put them there. Then about a month after that, you go ahead and put them on the north side. You think you're going to have any flowers growing? It's going to be hard if you have anything coming up. So how do you think it is if a person is trying to establish themselves in the faith and then, you know, one day they're up, second day they're down, next day they're up, next day they're down, one day they love God, the next week they can't stand God, then they're in church and they're in love with the Lord, then they don't want to have anything to do with God. You can't establish any roots that way. So we need to be the kind of people that are established in the faith so that our belief and trust and confidence in God is rock solid as we have been taught. Even if other people backslide, don't backslide. If other people turn and walk away from God for whatever reason they come up with, don't you do it. Just keep building your faith up in God. And then you can see the last sentence of verse 7 tells us that as believers, we should be people that have a heart filled with thanksgiving. Yeah. Gratitude. To be thankful to God. Now, verse 8 is interesting because it tells us not to let anybody spoil us through philosophy. Interesting, you know, that you find a word like that here in one of Paul's letters. The ancient Greeks certainly esteemed philosophy, and Socrates is popular, Plato is popular, Aristotle is popular, and so all of his disciples. And the Romans had their own philosophers like Cicero and other people who, whose books are still read today. And people, they, they, they like to argue about how to discover the origins and what's the meaning of life and what's the point of all of this? What's the point of our existence? You know, they like to sit around and have discussions about stuff like that. So this is why Paul said, don't let anybody spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit. The reason he calls it vain deceit in the traditions of men is because every generation creates reasons for why things are the way they are, even if they can't prove them. And there are a whole lot of philosophers today that are still like that. I read a book one time by Bertrand Russell, British philosophers called Why I Am Not a Christian. And he just goes through all of these, these elaborate arguments about, you know, to be a Christian. First of all, you got to identify what the word Christian means. He couldn't even do that correctly as I read the book, but he thought he was on the right path. And then he goes through this whole thing about there can't be a first cause of everything because if there is a first cause, then who made God? And now he goes through all of this <clears throat> where he's trying to twist the minds of readers. But the principle we have to always understand <clears throat> is that all of us come to whatever belief we have with the idea that our beliefs are right. See, we all do. But, but the difference is the Spirit of God provides revelation to the mind and the heart so that we'll know that we've come in contact with the truth. You don't have to be an atheist. A whole lot of philosophers are, but there are a lot of philosophers who are not, who do believe in God and know how to defend the faith. And they can <clears throat> have debates with people and get involved with that and argue about that. Those things don't interest me. At all. Let me give you one more verse. <clears throat> Let's go to 1 Timothy 6. <clears throat> Let's see if we make it that far. I get to cough in here. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 <clears throat> <First> Timothy <clears throat> 6. And then 
<clears throat> we'll finish with uh, this verse 20. <clears throat> o Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust, <clears throat> avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. So you have a lot of people in different occupations who think <clears throat> that if you're involved with philosophy, you'll come to disbelieve in God because folks will say things like this. Anybody who's intelligent, who takes the time to really think about the whole God issue, they're going to come to the conclusion there is no God. But, but that's not the testimony of the world. And you hear people today on television saying all the time, well, so-and-so, they don't like science. They don't believe in science. <clears throat> well, science is fine so long as you can prove whatever theory you have. But the bottom line is, Paul mentions here in verse 20, the oppositions of science because <clears throat> they can't always agree with themselves. You know, the, the, perfect, the perfect illustration of that is, is how we're having to deal with all this stuff right now with coronavirus. In the beginning, I heard them on television. Here's what they said. You don't need a mask. It won't be of any value to you. We're not even sure to help you. Now, certain states, you can't go anywhere without a mask. And if you don't wear it, you don't believe the science. You reject the science. Now, they tell you wear a mask, but then they don't even tell you what kind of mask to put on. So rather than a surgical mask or an R95 or whatever, I see people walking around here. They got bandanas around their nose. They've cut up an old dirty T-shirt and they got it wrapped around their face. And they're trying to convince everybody that this is somehow protecting, any, protecting everybody. It's all a psychological thing because they see the mask. Now, if you got one of the real ones that actually help you, that's fine. But here's my point scientists themselves don't always agree amongst themselves. So if they can't agree with themselves about something as simple as a mask, do you really think they'd ever be able to get together on how the world was made and about what it means to live a holy life? Of course not. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, avoid profane babblings. So when I listen to Richard Dawkins and his debates with preachers and <clears throat> theologians about whether or not God exists, I know it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for them anyhow because that carnal mind in sin did not appreciate the things of God. Somebody living in darkness cannot appreciate the light. Trust the word, folks. Trust the word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this study this evening and being able to look into the scripture. And we're so happy that the word is true. and We don't have to change our belief no matter what anybody is saying. I pray, God, that we'll continue to live for you and live close to you. And uh, continue to remind us every day about how much you love us as we follow your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said. Amen, amen, amen.